What It Takes is brought to you by Google, leading the way toward a carbon-free future. By 2030, Google aims to operate on 24-7 carbon-free energy. That means they'll source only clean electricity on every grid where they operate all day, every day. Michael Terrell is the director of energy at Google. He oversees the company's strategy for round-the-clock clean energy. What 24-7 carbon-free energy means to me is solving the actual problem, not some middle step that we need to achieve before we can start thinking about solving the actual problem, but solving the problem, getting from where we are now to carbon-free everywhere at all times, which is what we want to achieve with our electricity consumption. Later in the show, we'll hear about the three pillars of Google's strategy for 24-7 carbon-free energy and why Michael thinks this goal is possible today. To learn more, go to g.co forward slash carbon free by 2030. I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our zero carbon future a reality. Over the past four years, I've had the privilege of interviewing nearly 40 incredible founders and CEOs on What It Takes. These founders have inspired emerging and established leaders across the industry, and each one of these conversations has helped me along my own founder journey. With that in mind, in this episode of What It Takes, we're turning the mic around to tell my story and the story of Powerhouse. This show is about doing really hard things. Building a company is hard enough. Building a company to confront a problem as big as climate change, that is a monumental undertaking. It makes the little things, the uncertainties, the questions, the setbacks that much more difficult. That's why I started Powerhouse, to support the entrepreneurs who are building our zero carbon future. When I first started Powerhouse, I was a newcomer in an industry that was rapidly changing. No one knew me, no one knew what Powerhouse was, and I wasn't always taken seriously. While I was lucky to have the support of many friends and colleagues, I also had my fair share of doubters. One of my most memorable moments as an entrepreneur was one day, a few years into starting Powerhouse, I was talking to someone in the industry in a one-on-one conversation, and he said directly to me, I didn't know you at the time, but when I heard you were starting Powerhouse, I just assumed you'd fail. He assumed I would fail. I remember thinking to myself, what am I supposed to say to that? But unfortunately, he wasn't my harshest critic. Someone was far worse, often telling me that I wasn't good enough or smart enough or capable enough. And that critic was myself. These days, Powerhouse is known for a lot of things. Our innovation firm, our venture fund, this very podcast. But in the early days, we had no clients, we had no capital, and I didn't know what I was doing. It took me a few years of proving myself, mostly to myself, to know that I am good enough and smart enough and capable enough. If you have doubts or if you have doubters, especially if you are a woman, a person of color, as someone not from the coasts, as someone who didn't go to an elite school, as someone who didn't grow up with wealth, or as someone who in any way has ever been made to feel like you are somehow other, then I'm here to tell you that you are also good enough and smart enough and capable enough. That is the spirit of this show. And that's why, with a bit of hesitation, we're airing an interview I did with my friend and fellow venture investor, Shale Khan. This conversation is about the story behind Powerhouse. It'll give you a better understanding of our past, our struggles, and our mission to identify the most innovative startups, connect them to the world's leading corporations, and drive decarbonization at scale. 
And hopefully it'll show you that you don't need a conventional background to succeed in this space. In fact, having an unconventional background might be your greatest asset. And so here's my conversation with Shale. Welcome to What It Takes. So oftentimes people start out introductions uh, by saying something like, my guest needs no introduction. It's literally the name of an interview show that David Letterman (laughs) hosts now. Um, And usually with the exception of some of those David Letterman guests, it's not actually true. But in this case, this is literally Emily's show. And so Emily (laughs) herself does actually need no introduction. So instead of an introduction, let me tell you what's annoying about Emily Kirsch. Wow, Shale, is that how we're starting? Just imagine, if you will, that you're friends with Emily. In fact, you're such a good friend to Emily that she asks you to take the honored place of being the guest host on her episode of What It Takes, where she gets interviewed instead of being the interviewer. And then imagine that you need to sit down and write an introduction that really captures the essence of Emily Kirsch. So you sit down at your computer, you have the perfect level of caffeine, you are ready to write, your eyes light up and you think Emily is, and then you pause. A look of befuddlement and then a frustration crosses your face because in what is a very rare circumstance for you in particular, you find yourself at a loss for words. Why are you at a loss for words? Because the word that is in your head, the word that actually describes Emily better than any other word is powerhouse, (laughs) which is also the name of her company. I ask you, what kind of person is so inconsiderate as to name her company with the term that perfectly describes her? It'd be like me starting a company called Slightly Wonky Investor Type. So that's annoying. But Emily is a powerhouse. And her story deserves to be told right up there alongside the 36 other leaders who have been on previous editions of What It Takes. Her story is equally important. And, you know, I would conjecture to say ultimately will supersede many of them. So I'm very excited and, in fact, honored to be the lucky one to interview the powerhouse that is Emily Kirsch on What It Takes. Emily. That was so great. Welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Shale. That was was an amazing intro. I'm really happy you're doing this. Um, Couldn't think of a better person to have this conversation with. Well, I'm excited for it. So let's get into it. But before we start talking about your life, I do have one question I've been dying to ask you. Uh, Anyone who watches these, no, this is a nice one, I promise. Anyone who watches uh, any of these What It Takes episodes or has had a Zoom call with you anytime in the past year will know that you have an absolutely incredible fiddle-leaf fig behind you on the screen. Mm -hmm. I've never seen Mm -hmm. one so large and so vibrant, and I have terrible, terrible plant envy. So what is your secret to keeping it alive? Um, most plants like bright, but indirect light, uh, water don't overwater. So like once a week or every two weeks, let it dry out in between waterings. You do those, you'll have happy plants. What if you just forget about it for like three or four months at a time and then, um, just dump a ton of water on it when you remember, does that, does that also work? I think then like succulents or cacti are your, are your go-tos. I'm big on succulents. Nice. All right. So Emily, you grew up in Mill Valley, which for those not in the Bay Area, is just north of San Francisco across the Golden Gate Bridge. 
And you lived a very adventurous childhood. Your parents were both educators who started a nonprofit that was focused on integrating the principles of sports into education. Uh, what were you like as a child? Um, so in prep for the show, I asked my dad and his one word was mischievous. So I'm going to take him at his word. You know, my parents always prioritized doing what we loved. We being my brother and I do what we love, make a positive impact. That was the most important thing that my brother and I could do. What else? I had a lot of autonomy and self-determination as a kid. At six or seven, my parents were like, you can walk to school by yourself. And so I was encouraged to just kind of, yeah, be independent, go get lost in the woods, go on adventures. And I think that very much shaped, yeah, my sense of adventurousness and risk-taking. I also grew up with a really strong work ethic. Um, my mom grew up on a farm in rural Minnesota. My dad grew up in East LA. They both had a strong work ethic. I have memories of my brother and I taking sleeping bags to their office so that we could sleep on the floor of their office so that they could work through the night. They were um, launching this nonprofit. As far as school, my parents were really adamant about us doing well in school, but also finding what we loved in education. And what else? I rode crew in high school and so got up at 4.30 every morning, rode from 5 to 7, then went to school, then came back to the boathouse and rode again from 4 to 6 every night. So a lot of discipline, a lot of pain. <laughs> and the last thing I'll say is my parents both grew up in religious households, but neither of them are religious. My dad grew up Jewish, my mom Lutheran. They didn't embrace religion in their adulthood, but they wanted us to have some sense of ritual in our family. And so every single day from the time that I can remember until I was about 13, before they would go to work and before my brother and I would go to school, we would together in unison say uh, this thing that I still say to myself sometimes today, which is, uh, let's be bold, let's be kind, let's learn something new, let's be grateful, and let's be forgiving. So I feel like that's kind of the foundation of my childhood. Nice. Uh, I'm interested to hear a little bit more about the nonprofit that your parents started integrating the principles of sports into education. What does that mean? Yeah. So basically, you know, for, for students, it started as a high school program for high school students that were succeeding athletically, but failing academically. It was an opportunity to incorporate sports principles like balance, teamwork, discipline, dedication. If those principles are applied to academics, then you can do really well both in athletics and in school. And so the program was for students to incorporate those two things so that they could excel at both. That's great. It would have been cool for me if that also worked in reverse, if I could just become good at sports by <laughs> integrating my nice. my nerdy principles. Um, I love it. One of the other things about your childhood that, that at least I think from knowing you carries through and has some consistencies in your life is that you, you grew up um, surrounded by a lot of wealth. Mill Valley has a, a lot of wealth for anybody who knows that area, but your, your family personally didn't have that much wealth. How do you think that that affected you? Yeah, I uh, definitely did as a kid. And I think still does today kind of for better and for worse. As a kid, I remember being aware of money and the scarcity around money. And so at seven or eight years old, again, given that my parents were pretty comfortable with me, being fairly independent, even as a kid, I would go door knocking on neighbors' doors and be like, can I do chores to get paid? And so I did that as a kid. At 11 or 12, I started cleaning houses. And I think there are some of those experiences that have served me well at Powerhouse. You know, when you're starting a company, there's something around being financially conservative and being really scrappy and, you know, having that kind of tenaciousness and work ethic that has served me. And in other ways, it has been to the detriment of Powerhouse and the team where, you know, I can be too frugal and not invest in the things that are required to succeed. So it's been, it's been a journey. I think it's probably one of my most consistent areas for growth. There's an expression that, um, 
Josh Wolf, who's a venture capitalist at Lux Capital, uses a lot, which is chips on shoulders, put chips in pockets. Do you, do you, th- <laughs> do you think that you, did you have a chip on your shoulder about that, about, you know, being surrounded by so much money that you didn't have, or did you not notice it? Oh, I don't know. God, you can't, you can't not notice it. Yeah. Like my high school graduation gift from my dad, at least was a toolbox full of tools, which is a freaking awesome gift. But like all of my peers were getting new cars. So very, very different. So yeah, definitely noticed it. Definitely felt it, but also was really grateful to have parents who didn't buy into that. You know, they're, they're some of the least materialistic people who I know. And so I felt like I had this foundation of materialism, not being the most important thing and not even being a thing to really celebrate at all. And again, there's pros and cons in that. And I think I've had to evolve my thinking to have my own relationship with money that is still evolving. Right. Right. All right. We'll come back to money because you now deploy it, (laughs) but continuing with your childhood, you, uh, in your junior year of high school, you did a study abroad program in South Africa. You know, I think that's earlier than many people go abroad in college. You did it in high school. What what drove you to do that and how was the experience? Yeah. So in high school, I wasn't feeling challenged in the ways that I wanted to be. And I felt like I was lacking this kind of global perspective. It's like I knew the world was out there, but I felt so confined to what was right in front of me. And I chose Africa because I thought it would give me the most perspective relative to anywhere else I could go. I chose South Africa because apartheid had only ended in 1994 and I wanted to see what racial reconciliation or at least attempts at it looked like firsthand. And so I spent the first half of the year there with a black Zulu family, the second half of the year with a white English family. And reflecting on it now, there's a lot of parallels to entrepreneurship. It's like, I was alone and had to figure things out. And it was really uncertain and uncomfortable at times. Um, But it also made me who I am. And I'm really grateful for the experience and would encourage, you know, for folks who have kids that are that age, like it, looking back on it now, I'm like, I was very young. I had just turned 16, but having an experience like that at such a formative age, yeah, it made me who I am. And I think it has served me in powerhouse. Yeah. I, I studied abroad in college in Ecuador and mm-hmm. it was, I definitely had some of my most uh, constructively lonely experiences. Yeah. Wow. Constructive loneliness is a good description. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I totally feel the same thing. Um, all right. So you spend an entire year abroad, your junior year in high school. What happens when you come back? Probably, you know, you've taken a leap in maturity relative to your peers, I would suspect. Yeah. I came back to my high school and was there for two weeks and was like, nope, <laughs> not, not doing this. And so found this independent study high school where you would only go to classes for like an hour to a week and then get all your work. And, and if you're self-directed and kind of intrinsically motivated, you'll be fine. And so I did that for my senior year. And then I, I was planning on going to college. And then I was like, you know what, this isn't what I want. This is what I, this is what society is telling me to do. This is what all my peers are doing, but I don't know what I want to study. And and I don't want to feel forced to do something I don't really want to do. So I decided at 17 that I wasn't going to go to college and, and had no intention to at the time. And so instead, day after graduating high school, I moved to Oakland, save up money for six months, and then moved to Central America, where I spent six months in Costa Rica, mostly on an off-grid, solar-powered chocolate and coffee farm, which was absolute paradise, one of the best decisions I ever made. And it was my first experience seeing renewables up front, like actually living with them and having them integrated into my life. And I was pretty fascinated. And then when I came back from Central America, uh, spent about a year just going to community college and taking classes for fun. It was the first time in my life I could choose what I wanted to learn, which was just like a joyous experience and one that I had never had. 
And then I racked up enough credits that a professor was like, you should really get a four-year degree and it'll be easier now than when you get older. And so he encouraged me to check out a program at San Francisco State University where you can create your own major if they don't have what you want to study. And so I was able to put together a program uh, that I called Sustainable Urban Development. And it looked at urban infrastructure like energy and transportation and looked at best practices from cities around the world. Um, So transferred in as a junior, graduated in a year and a half. And yeah, that was my college experience. So- then you meet someone, which ends up being, I think, a pretty formative relationship for you at the time and kind of propels you into the next stage of your life, which is Van Jones, who is a previous What It Takes guest. H- how did you meet Van? Yeah, Van, I just met him at an event. I, I didn't know who he was, like few people did at the time. This was probably 2006 or so. Went to an event, heard him speak, was just totally enthralled and started volunteering at the organization that he started, a nonprofit based in Oakland called the Ella Baker Center volunteered, then interned, then became a research consultant. This is all while I was still at San Francisco State. And then the day before I was graduating from state, I interviewed with them for a full-time job and got the job like hours before graduating. I remember crying. I was so happy. And then started, graduated on a Friday, started there on a Monday and started as a community organizer, which most people didn't know the term until Barack Obama ran for president because it was part of his early career. But yeah, did that for about five years. Who was Van Jones at that point? I think a lot of people now, you know, they know Van Jones. It's like a talking head on CNN, things like that. Yep. He, he He's had a lot in between then and now. But at that point in time, like, who was he? So um, the organization was founded to work on criminal justice reform, which it still does. That is the primary focus. When I joined, they had something called the Green Collar Jobs Campaign. And this is when green jobs was kind of like the lexicon. You know, he got presidential candidates talking about it on stage. And uh, he was... I mean, in in most ways, it's like he's the same, like, brilliant, empathetic, creative person he is now. But um, but he was also, yeah, not a internationally recognized political commentator on CNN. He was just kind of a driven, caring, mission-oriented person. All right. So then comes this sort of string of connections that bring you through somebody else who was actually famous at that time, but was behind the scenes. So draws the line from Van Jones to Prince, the musician, to what was then called Solar Mosaic. Yep. So Van was friends with the music icon Prince. Prince was hearing about all the work that Van was doing in Oakland and on green jobs. And Prince did all the secret philanthropic work all over the country that he did not talk about. And if you worked with him on it, you actually couldn't talk about it. That's how humble he was. It's like, not only do I not want you to, you can't. I feel like this a, isn't about me. A lot of that stuff has come out after he he passed away, right? That's like it right. became known yep. that he was doing all this stuff behind the scenes, including in Oakland, but elsewhere too. That's exactly right. Yep. And to this day, if you drive around Oakland, if you're on pretty much any freeway in Oakland and you see a solar project on like a church, a community center, Prince had a role to play in that. So yeah, Van was friends with Prince. Prince wanted to do something in Oakland. Uh, Van was like, what should Prince do? And at the same time, a mutual friend of Van and mine named Billy Parrish was starting something that at the time was called Solar Mosaic. Uh, the original business model of which was to crowdsource capital from people like you and me to finance communities, or not community solar, but to finance solar projects on nonprofits and community-based orgs. And so uh, Prince gave a grant to Mosaic to pilot their platform in Oakland. And Van said, this is great work. Why don't you, Emily, in your capacity at the Ella Baker Center, help Mosaic get started? You have all the relationships with their potential customers. Why don't you work with them on their pilot? And so I spent, I don't know, six months to a year, like climbing up on roofs and helping close these deals for Oakland's initial projects. And I just absolutely fell in love with what they were doing. 
it was kind of rebellious. It was new. It was innovative. It was tangible. You could see, you can still see the the results of the work. And so, yeah, that's the tie between fan prints mosaic. And so that's also your, basically your first experience with anything in the private sector, right? You had been doing a bunch of nonprofit work in a bunch of different ways. And then all of a sudden you get thrown into helping a company, Solar Mosaic, like build its business in the early stages. Did you sort of catch the entrepreneurship bug immediately? And how did that feel to you? Oh yeah. It felt like, I mean, it felt like coming home to something. It felt like, you know, back to my childhood days, sweeping porches. (laughs) Like I, uh, yeah, it just, it just felt right. I don't know how else to describe it. I think growing up, and I imagine a lot of people our age felt this way, you could either work in the nonprofit sector and make no money but feel like you're doing good, or you could work in business and you're evil. At least that's sort of the sentiment that that I had growing up. And so Mosaic was one of the first times that I had direct experience with a company that, that was doing good and was an actual company. And so I think that opened my eyes to an entire world that I now get to live in every day that I didn't know was there until that experience. Yes, that was certainly, uh, I was brought up in the Midwest uh, with progressive parents who had met in like an activist, you know, anti-war movement in the 60s. And that was definitely what was drilled into me that the third option was to be like an academic or in government or something like that. But business was scary. So you fall in love with, with entrepreneurship through this mosaic experience. And then you basically pretty quickly, as I understand it, sort of pivot into starting something entirely new. It is now called Powerhouse. It is the thing that you run today, but it is important that we spend a minute talking about what it used to be called. So what did it used to be called and and why? I think, Shell, what really matters here <laughs> is not our original name, but the consistency of our mission. <laughs> okay, fine. That's probably true. And yet I still want you to say it. Oh my gosh. Um, all right. Can I, can I tell you the story that will get us to the name? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll allow that. <laughs> thank, thank you. All right. So yeah, I was working on Solar Mosaic in Oakland. And in doing so, I realized, well, I thought there's got to be some kind of hub of innovation, entrepreneurship that brings together founders and corporations and investors. Like this is the San Francisco Bay Area, home of global venture capital, home of clean energy innovation. This entity that I think should exist must already exist. And I looked for a long time and I couldn't find it. And I was like, that's weird. And at the time, I was in my late 20s. Like you said, I had basically no business experience. And so I was like, well, I should try to start this because what, I'm going to fail? Then I'm going to be in a similar place to I am to where I am now. But if it works, that'd be cool. <laughs> and so um, decided to start this thing. But I also realized that as a young woman with very little, if any, business experience trying to get into this industry, I knew I needed somebody who was a little older and a little maler and a little more integrated into the business world and a little more connected to money to to help me start this thing. And so I was like, well, I don't know that many people who do that, but I had met Denny Kennedy, who was one of the co-founders of Sungevity and had worked with him through the work at the Ella Baker Center that he was really supportive of. And so I went to him and I was like, I think this thing should exist. I need somebody like you to help me get it going. If you leave your job part-time at Sungevity, I will leave my job full-time to start this thing. And so somehow convinced him to say yes to that. Danny and Sengevity had this ethos around what they call SFUN, standing for solar for universal need, the idea that everybody needs and deserves access to clean energy. They had it etched in the wall in glass in, in their office. And so Danny was like, I think we should call it SFUN Cube. And I was like, you know what? I don't really have business experience. So I think, sure, okay. <laughs> yeah, why <laughs> and not? So, 
why not? I like I don't have any better ideas at the time. So uh, so the original name of Powerhouse was Fun Cube. That's S F U N C U B E. Fun Cube. That's one for the ages. Fun Cube. We'll- yes. Oh, fun story. When I told Van that I was starting Fun Cube. I was like, Van, I'm starting this thing called Spun Cube. And he was like, I'm sorry, what? What's it called? I was like, Spun Cube. He's like, Emily, it sounds like you're saying f*** you. Yeah, I, I had that experience <laughs> as well. Um, but, you know, it, it, Danny is a great, he's a great person for you to have found, I think, because Danny Danny really has done a, a, almost a better job than anybody of like bridging the activist world and the business world, right? Like you said, he was the founder of Sungevity, one of the founders of Sungevity. Prior to that, he had worked at Greenpeace for a really long time. And even when he's been in the business world, even since then, now running New Energy Nexus, like he's still, you know, you could tell he's his he's got one foot in activist land, one foot in the business world. So it seems like Definitely. he was a good bridge for you, him and Prince. 100%. Him and Prince, yeah. All right. So that's the early days of what was Spun Cube and is now Powerhouse. We don't have to say it I'm gonna, I might say it one or two more times. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. One of the things that I think a lot of folks don't totally appreciate about Powerhouse, nice Spun Cube, is that, you know, there's like a, there's a venerable history of pivots amongst startups. Many startups, I would venture to say probably most startups at some point, try to execute some sort of a business pivot in their business model. Some work, many don't. Powerhouse executed a really substantial pivot and did it, I think, so well that most people don't recognize that it happened. So why don't you start by telling us what was Powerhouse back when it was FunCube? That's my last one. And then tell us what is Powerhouse today? Let's see. So Powerhouse was an incubator and an accelerator. And so what that means is the incubator, physical office space for entrepreneurs to run their companies out of. The accelerator was a nine-month program. Most accelerators, you know, set time frame, you get a little bit of capital, you get a bunch of support. So we ran a nine-month program to get basically like idea on a napkin stage company started. So this is not like, here's my deck and here's my pitch and here's my traction. It's like, I think I could build this. And then we were like, great, here's some money and here's some support. Let's see what you can do. So that's what Powerhouse was. The majority of our revenue came from entrepreneurs and startups just paying to be part of the physical space. Um, We also had some DOE grants and some early support from the Schmidt Family Foundation. But for the most part, it was, yeah, incubator, accelerator, physical space and community for entrepreneurs. We stopped the incubator for a few reasons. One is In my late 20s, with very little savings, I signed a five-year lease to take on the top three floors of an office in downtown Oakland, paying $50,000 a month, which I had no way to determine whether we'd be able to to pull that amount of capital together each month, let alone make a profit on it. Somehow we did. And so after that five-year lease, I was like, I survived the landlord game. I am out. I don't want that risk. At one point, we had about 120 entrepreneurs in the space between about 20 or 25 startups. So it was super fun, like amazing happy hours and roof deck parties and like great community, like couldn't, couldn't beat that. But it was a lot of risk and it was a lot of like ops, you know, facility management, which I'm like, I'm not trying to do that with my career. So stopped being an incubator. And then the accelerator, you know, as you know, now in venture, when you see a good deal, you kind of have to do the deal. Whereas accelerators, when you're running on a set time frame, it's like, oh, we just started a cohort, come back in six months. You know, that doesn't always align to supporting ideas when they're trying to launch. And so we decided to no longer do the accelerator. And eventually that evolved into Powerhouse Ventures, which I'm happy to talk about, but that's all of the kind of history of what Powerhouse was. All right. So that's what Powerhouse was. What is Powerhouse today? 
And I think particularly because it's sort of opaque on the outside, like what is the business model of Powerhouse? Today, Powerhouse is both an innovation firm, that's the company, and then a venture fund, which the venture fund is pretty straightforward, structured as you know traditional venture capital fund. We invest, the way we describe it is we invest in founding teams, building innovative technology to rapidly transform our global energy and mobility systems. Unlike other funds in the space, we believe that in order to address the climate crisis, we have to back and deploy our best and most viable market-based solutions today. So it's like, Whatever we have today, get it deployed at scale as quickly as possible. That's what we believe uh, is what it will take to, to address the climate crisis. We've invested in 18 startups to date. We're backed by some industry giants like Total, but then also a bunch of industry legends like David Crane and Ben Tarbell and Dan Sugar and Howard Wenger. Both David Crane and Dan Sugar have been on the podcast. We're going to wrap up our initial investments through our first fund by the end of this year. And we've invested in a bunch of companies that you know I know you know. So that's all Powerhouse Ventures. Going back to the company, Powerhouse, the innovation firm, is working with corporations like uh, Schneider Electric and utilities like NL and companies like DNVGL and tech companies like Google, conglomerates like Marabeni Power. We help them find and engage with startups that they want to become a customer of or invest in or acquire to help them advance their innovation and decarbonization goals. And so what we don't talk about much, similar to not talking about the pivot, but just doing it kind of quietly is we have been quietly for years building this database of startups that's similar to Crunchbase or PitchBook, but much more granular and accurate data because it comes from the startups themselves. They share it with us because we'll use it to make introductions to potential customers or investors of theirs. It's free to them because it's paid for by our partnerships with corporations. So most of the revenue now comes from partnerships, you know, annual contracts with our corporate partners who, you know, are not doing this as like charity or sponsorship. Like we are a for-profit company offering a service that they find value in. And that's something that I've been really proud of that Powerhouse is a for-profit, that we only exist if the market and the private sector finds value in what we're building. And that has forced us to evolve and create a product that that is of service to them, which is ultimately in service of the broader industry and ultimately in addressing the climate crisis. Coming up, Shale asked me the question we ask all of our guests, have you ever come close to shutting your doors? First, a word about our partners who bring you this show. What It Takes is supported by Google, leading the way to a carbon-free future. Earlier in the show, you heard from Michael Terrell, who sets the strategy and direction for Google's 24-7 carbon-free energy target. The carbon-free future is not something that's decades away. It's something that we can actually achieve in this decade, and we want to help lead the way. Google is working to source clean energy from local grids every hour of the day, everywhere they operate. It won't be easy, but with the right technologies, partnerships, and policies, it is possible. To make it happen, Michael and his team are focused on three areas. First, we want to change the way we transact for energy to get smarter about contracting for carbon-free energy. Second, we want to advance technology so we can utilize and scale the technologies that we have and also develop new technology approaches to how we manage energy. And lastly, we want to apply public policy. How can we advance policy to move grids to 24-7 carbon-free energy faster? This isn't just about the goal of one company. It's about everyone. Google wants to prove how the entire economy can decarbonize one grid at a time. It's really about showing the way for the world. And we think that we have reached a point with electricity that the carbon-free future is possible, and it's not possible at some point in the distant future, it's possible in the near future, and working together, we can all make it happen. 
If you want to get inspired by the challenge or if your business can help Google get to 24-7 carbon-free energy by 2030, visit g.co forward slash carbon-free by 2030. What It Takes is brought to you by NextTracker. NextTracker is building connected power plants of the future by integrating new solar technologies and advanced control software. NextTracker's tracking systems are future-proof, built to withstand the worst possible conditions in any terrain. NextTracker also has a control system called NX Navigator that allows plant operators to precisely track every parameter of a solar project in real time, schedule maintenance, and command trackers during extreme weather events. This raises plant efficiency and bankability. To hear the entrepreneurial story of NextTracker CEO Dan Sugar, go back and listen to the third episode in our back catalog. You won't regret it. And if you want to learn more about how NextTracker is advancing the connected power plants of the future across five continents, go to nexttracker.com. So now I think we have a decent understanding of what Powerhouse is. Basically, everybody who's been on what it takes at some point has, and you've asked this question, I think of most of them, they have felt like they were within days or weeks or months of shutting their doors. They were nearly at failure mode. Was Powerhouse ever at that point? Yeah, definitely. Especially early on. So we've only ever raised 350K. Like that's 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 all the capital powerhouse has ever raised, which is, you know, very different from the space that we operate in, which again is something I'm proud I'm proud of. Like all the growth has been organic. But what that meant is like that's not that much money. And uh, unless you're generating consistent revenue, then that runs out pretty quickly. Um, and so there were definitely times early on when, yeah, like uh, I just couldn't couldn't pay myself and had to think really hard about you know, is this something I can continue to do? But I think when you believe so deeply in something, it's like you just try every possible thing until, well, until something works. And <laughs> like, uh, you know, maybe it doesn't and then you're done. But like until you try every possible avenue, then you're not, then you're not done. So we just kept trying and it worked. Glad it worked. Thank you. <laughs> and so now, so now you run the innovation firm and you have this fund and you're sort of a, you know, not, now it's been a couple of years, but still a relatively new entrant to the world of venture capital. I'm somewhat similar, right? I'm, I'm what, three years now into to being a venture capitalist myself. I found it to be an interesting world to be on the inside of, and, and it's somewhat different from what it looks like on the outside. So what, what's been your experience of entering the world of VC and particularly like what has surprised you being on the inside of it that you wouldn't have known from the outside? I think what's not super surprising is how close it is. It's like, we talk so much, you know, like us and our peers, we talk all the time. We all see the same deals. Like we all share deal flow uh, and notes. And so I think, I think that is probably not surprising. I think what was surprising and maybe it shouldn't have been given kind of who runs venture capital, but it's so siloed, like internally, it's so, my, my sense is a lot of funds operate very individualistically where it's like, this is my deal or I sourced it, or I have to kind of take it to the IC and push it. And I just think that's counter to what leads to the best outcomes. Like at at Powerhouse Ventures, we diligence deals together. We come to conclusions through consensus. Like ultimately I make the final legal call on whether we do an investment or not. But the process is just so collaborative in a way that we know like consistent studies have shown that, or studies have consistently shown that that collective intelligence is just better and more accurate. And so I think, why wouldn't we want as many people as possible providing their input uh, throughout the course of a diligence process? So I think that's one thing that compared to what I've heard from other, you know, colleagues who who are at or run other venture funds, it seems like 
a pretty unique process. Another facet of uh, venture capital that is also true of the energy industry more broadly is that they're both notoriously male-dominated industries. Uh, And you're not only a woman yourself, but also the majority of the team at Powerhouse is and has always been female. How do you think that that has affected your path and the success that you've achieved ultimately in this space? Early on, it definitely felt like a liability. I think people just doubted me more. I mean, for a lot of reasons, <laughs> one of which maybe it was because I was a woman, but but yeah, I mean, people were patronizing. Like we'd be in meetings and people would know that I was CEO and they wouldn't make eye contact with me. Like they wouldn't even look at me. And that that's yeah, it was it was really hard. And so I think the fact that Powerhouse is women founded and and owned and led and and a majority women team, I think that that has been a factor in our success. I think that 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 sense of just collaboration, emotional intelligence, empathy like that, that is a quality that all the team members, including the men on the team, have as such core strengths. And I think that that is part of what makes us effective because what we're trying to do is really hard. It's like we're working with some of the biggest players in the world to shift and accelerate their practices. That takes so much trust to be able to do that. And I think the powerhouse team has done that really well. And I especially want to credit, you know, there, there was kind of Powerhouse 1.0, Incubator Accelerator, and, and then to Powerhouse 2.0. And Powerhouse 2.0, yeah, it was it was me, Emily Fritzy, Alex Harbour. And like for a long time, like that was it. And I just think they they get so much credit for, for helping build Powerhouse into what it is today. And then the team today carries on those values. And the men who are on the team, I think, have those qualities in spades. And I think it's made us stand out and it's made us effective. You've also pointed out, to me before a fact that is is kind of surprising, I guess, or maybe was surprising to me, perhaps not to you, which is that of all the 36 guests that you've had on What It Takes, who are all highly accomplished in this sector, all of the guests who are men have kids, whereas only half of the guests who are women have kids. What do you make of that? Yeah. I I asked Kathy Zoy, who was a recent what it takes guess the same question. And yeah, she was just like, yeah, it's messed up, Um, which I agree. It's unfortunate that, yeah, there have been some studies that show that in opposite sex relationships, the effect on a man's relationship or the effect, sorry, on a man's career is that the relationship enhances his career. And in that same relationship, the relationship hinders the woman's career. And so I think, you know, fundamentally, it's like the most, I, I agree with the statement that the most important business decision that women can make or the most important career decision is who we choose to be with. And I feel incredibly fortunate to be with someone who 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 just so consistently enhances my career and, and that we do that for each other. As far as the kid thing, it's a really big, hard decision and not one that I've made yet. And I just, uh, you know, feel, feel for the founders and CEOs who are women who are trying to figure that piece out. Um, I will say that the age skews on what it takes guess, the age does skew older for men relative to women. Um, so th- I think that would account, uh, at least in part, that would account for the difference in part. Maybe that just means that women are being successful earlier in their lives in this sector than, <laughs> than men are. They're getting it done faster in classic classic fashion. So one thread that I want to pull through from, from your whole life, I think alluded to it, um, when we were talking about your childhood and growing up surrounded by wealth, that I, I think, at least from observation, is seems important to who you are, which is that you, in many of the circumstances that you found yourself in, you've been a bit of an outsider, whether in your childhood surrounded by wealth that you didn't have, um, or you know now being in the world of venture capital, 
but not coming from Stanford or Harvard, not having an MBA, not having a banking background, not you know, like all, you know, not having been a successful entrepreneur before, you know, the sort of standard mold, and this is true of me as well, standard mold that fits the, you know, venture capital archetype today is not you. And I think that's been consistent in a bunch of the things that you've done in your career. You know, why do you think that is? And how do you think that has affected you in how you behave in these different circumstances? I think it's taken me a long time to be proud of that. And then I still struggle at times not being proud of that. But, you know, the older I get, the more comfortable I feel with that being a core part of who I am and a core part of what has enabled me to to do what I've done. For a long time, I struggled with imposter syndrome. Like the first five years of Powerhouse was just kind of consistent undermining of myself. And despite the fact that I think I am a really empathetic person, not sharing that same empathy with myself. And so it's taken me a long time to just kind of get past that. My last trip before the pandemic was a ski trip uh, with an incredible group of people uh, in our industry, pretty much all of whom went to MIT or Stanford or some other elite school. And I remember the first night being there and it just took everything in me to just tell myself, like, I belong here. It's okay that I'm here. Like, I just had to say that in my head a bunch of times to, like, just be okay being there. And so it is hard. And I think for people who who don't fit the mold, there is that extra self-acceptance that we have to have to feel like we we do belong. And not only do we belong, but that we're actually in some ways more uniquely positioned to be successful because we have such a different experience, because we're bringing a perspective that others don't have. It's like, if I had taken a traditional path, we wouldn't be talking powerhouse wouldn't exist, powerhouse ventures wouldn't exist, what it takes wouldn't exist. <laughs> so I think when I think of it that way, I'm like, heck yeah, I'm an outsider. And like, I hope I always will be. Yeah. And then the last thing I'll say, I think as it relates to that point on, on education is as insecure as I felt for a long time about having gone to a state school and not an elite school, I've worked now long enough to know that an elite education is not an indicator of character or worth ethic or intelligence. It's I've learned that I care so much more about the path that someone has been on and how how much distance have they traveled from where they started to where they are now. Like that's the interesting indicator of success. So I think for anyone who kind of relates to that experience, that is something that that I am now grateful for and see it for the asset that it is. You've long been a big proponent of executive coaching in various varieties. You've actually suggested to me, you know, you and I have had conversations about both of our careers and you suggested to me an idea that I've never taken you up on, um, that my understanding is you also (laughs) haven't taken you up on, but one of us should, which is this idea of like a personal Mm -hmm. board of directors that you, you bring, get yourself a board of directors for, to help you make decisions about your life and career. Um, but clearly you've put a lot of thought into, self-improvement and and leadership, uh, what role do you think the sort of advice and input of others plays in that for you? I still want to be on your board of directors, if you let me. <laughs> oh, is that why? <laughs> well, and I want you on, on my board. board. <laughs> I understand. Okay. We can talk that's, about this that's after. That's a fair but, trade. Um, but no, I have, I have not yet pulled together a personal board of directors, but I really like the idea. I have done executive coaching for four years. My coach, Seth, is a incredibly important part of my life. When I look back at who I was four years ago versus who I am now in my leadership, it's just, it's, it's so different. And a lot of that I attribute to coaching. And so I think for all of us that are taking on really challenging things, surrounding ourselves with as much support as possible makes so much sense. So yeah, I, I, I very much endorse that, that work. And yeah, as far as personal development goes, it's like, I feel like I'm kind of obsessed with personal improvement, which, you know, good thing is 
that's great. It gives me an opportunity to improve. Bad thing is, I think I can be hard on myself in ways that are actually not helpful or productive. So trade-offs there. What is the future of Powerhouse and Powerhouse Ventures? Let's see. Well, future of Powerhouse. Um, so for the innovation firm, you know, we're working with a handful of some of the biggest players in the industry. My hope is that there will come a time that every major corporation, uh, you know, energy companies, utilities, mobility OEMs, anyone who's trying to decarbonize and knows that they need to partner with entrepreneurs and startups that are bringing the technology that they need to achieve their goals as quickly as possible, that those entities know that in order to do that effectively and efficiently, you do that with Powerhouse. That's my goal. So I'm hoping to continue to expand our partners and support them in in positioning them so that they can lead the type of innovation that they are starting to make the commitments to, but I think are still trying to figure out how to actually how to actually do it and who to do it with. As far as Powerhouse Ventures goes, I hope that we're one of the most successful funds in venture period, like not just in our industry. Like I just want to be, you know, extremely <laughs> effective at generating returns such that the world has a data point for, yes, this industry makes sense and that backing emerging managers and and underrepresented managers who are women, who are underrepresented people of color, that that is a good bet to make. I want to prove all of that with Powerhouse Ventures. All right. This is your chance. What message do you have? Do you want to send to the listeners of What It Takes, the founders who've been on the show before, the executives? What is your message to this audience? Oh, I mean, there's so much that I love about Powerhouse and Powerhouse Ventures. What It Takes is is one of the things that I love most. Um, so I think to the listeners, I think it's important for folks to know that collectively that we are making progress on climate and when I look at the national and international conversations that are happening right now, like this has never happened before. And, and it's happening in part because of every single one of us that does this work day in and day out, that we each play a really important role and that when we're doing it together, it does have an impact because we're seeing it at the national and global scale. And then to the guests who have been on the show, uh, I'm just so fortunate that they were willing to do it. Ah, yeah. I have so much more empathy for guests now. Um, what do you I mean? I made this less. so easy for you. You did. You did. But we haven't even gotten to the high voltage <laughs> round. So don't tell me about it being easy. Let's see. Yeah, so far, <laughs> I this, said. <laughs> this, this, exactly, exactly. Um, but no, I think I think the guests are just phenomenal people that I feel really fortunate to know. And, and I'm grateful that they shared their stories with the world. All right. You made the segue for me. So we're going to move on to the high voltage round. For anybody who has listened to a lot of takes before, you will know the high voltage round is a series of rapid fire questions that usually Emily asks. And now I will ask Emily at the end. Uh, in normal circumstances, I will say the way that it works is that, you know, Emily spends a lot of time preparing with the guests ahead of time so that they're ready for everything except the high voltage questions. And then the high voltage questions are the ones that they don't know ahead of time. But you do run through generally a pretty standard list of high voltage questions. And so I did notice you being an extremely prepared person <laughs> that in the shared Google Doc that we have been using to prepare uh. for this recording, you started answering the normal high voltage questions. I just wanted to think it through, you know? Mm -hmm. So that was a great cue for me to not ask those questions. I'm going to ask a few of them, but I've come up with some of my own as well. All right. Are you ready? These no. are going to be fine. <laughs> it's going to be fine. They're, they're all totally fine. I'm going to start with an easy one. All right. If you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? Yes. Um, I'm so happy you asked this one. It's one of my favorites. I would definitely be an elephant because they are highly intelligent. They have really complex emotions. They're matriarchal. They're social. They're playful. They're excellent communicators. 
Did you know that they can communicate between 10 and 20 miles through uh, rumblings in their stomach? They call them seismic signals. So yeah, just remarkable communicators. They're gentle, but they're powerful, and they're vegetarians. If you could snap your fingers and be better at something overnight, what would you pick? Ooh, I would like to kind of instantly assume that others are... It's it's like it's uh, it's funny for me to even say it, but like yeah, like instantly assume that others are right. Like if somebody has a different idea or they think of something differently or they think it should be done differently, it would be fun to experiment with. Just like I'm just gonna and I am actually practicing this, but like I'm just gonna assume you're right. Like what is what is that like? I would like to be better at that. Fascinating. What would the people who know you best say is your best quality? Being being caring and being empathetic, but also if you do know me really well, then you know that I'm really goofy in ways that. The vast majority of people never see, but yeah, lots, lots of, of goofball in there. Empathy and goofiness. Okay. Uh, reverse question. What would the people who know you best say is the quality that you could stand to work on the most? Oh, wow. Mm. The first thing that comes to mind, I don't know if this is true, but maybe being demanding. You didn't want to demand that that is the correct answer. So you're, you're adding a question (laughs) mark to the end of it. I understand. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. When have you failed? The answer that I was initially thinking of was when uh, I applied to and did not get into business school, but I actually think that's a failure of society to not recognize the value of people like me. Um, So I don't think that is actually my failure. But the other that I would say is kind of similar to what we talked about earlier as far as, you know, taking feedback and acting on it. I feel like I've done a good job historically of, of welcoming feedback. I have failed in acting on it in a way that has been to the detriment of Powerhouse, and I'm working on improving that now. All right. This one was a recommendation from your team at Powerhouse. What are your thoughts on goats? Goats. <laughs> I mean, specifically baby goats. About a year ago at this time, uh, my partner Alex and I spent some time at a baby goat farm and did baby goat yoga, which was one of the best experiences of my life. And I highly, highly recommend it. <laughs> this was not intended to be one of the high voltage questions, but what is baby goat yoga? <laughs> Um, so baby goats naturally like to climb. Uh, and so you can do yoga with baby goats and they climb on you. Okay. That sounds like everything you would want it to be. Yeah. Um, (laughs) what is something that you thought was true, but you no longer believe? This was probably the hardest one. I didn't have a, an answer for this. I mean, for myself and my own journey, kind of with imposter syndrome, I think I used to believe that I wasn't enough. And now I think that I am. What is your favorite time of day? Ooh, morning. I am a morning person. Thanks back to the crew days. <laughs> I think it's the... Exactly, exactly. I love sunrise. Yeah, I don't drink coffee. Uh, and so, but like the, the the energy is there. You not drinking coffee is is the craziest thing about you. I can't believe I didn't actually bring <laughs> that up before. I knew that about you. And it, it it's, I, I can't, I don't even understand people who don't drink coffee. I mean, me on coffee, like you don't need, no, no one in the world needs me on coffee. You know, it's probably equivalent to me not on coffee. (laughs) Okay. Finish these sentences for me. Okay. Companies fail because. Either because the universe doesn't need what they've built for whatever reason, like product, team, culture, or because capitalism isn't structured to create a business out of what they have built. Success is. Success to me is having the greatest positive impact possible in the time that I'm here. The secret to success is... The secret to success is... 
having relationships with people who you believe in and they believe in you? I'm forcing you to answer this one. My favorite what it takes guest was. No, Shale. Um, one of my favorites was. I'll make it easier on you. Okay, easier. Thank you. I mean, one of my favorites. Yeah, I feel like I have to say Van just because he's been part of my journey the longest and one of the most instrumental in me being able to have this conversation with you right now. My least favorite wadded guest. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I will never. Oh, I will never. Hmm. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of things, but like, it's not really my personality to never kind of, kind of like a yes and experiment person. So I say, Ex- I will. Exclusively, I will. Maybe yeah. my weirdest trait is. <laughs> Oh man, I know, I know exactly uh, which one to share. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, was a, that was a good way to put it. That means there's one you don't want to share. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, um, I've always been this way. I like things to be really clean and really organized. And I'm obsessed with this cleaning product called Bon Ami. It's like a powder cleaner. It's like a safe kind of non-toxic powder cleaner. Um, and just using the powder, <laughs> the powder, the Bon Ami is like, like the sound of the label ripping off the top when you have a new can. <laughs> That's like your ASMR equivalent. Exactly. Exactly. I'm most proud of. Uh, I'm most proud of having taken the risk and facing the very likely outcome of failure and having built Powerhouse and, and the team that we've pulled together to do what we do. To build a successful movement, what it takes is? Um, I was also struggling with this one and like, I don't have an answer because I don't know yet and I'm working on it and I'll let you know when I figure it out. All right. Thank you so much, Emily, for allowing me to be the one to do the Emily Kirsch What It Takes episode. Oh, thank you, Shale. This was so fun. Thank you for listening to my story and that of Powerhouse. And again, if you are coming to this industry from an unconventional background, it is an asset and you do belong here. Join us for new stories each month of founders who are building our carbon-free future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. I want to thank Google for their support of the show. Find out how Google is accelerating the deployment of next-generation clean energy with its 24-7 carbon-free goal. Learn more by following the link in the show notes. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse in partnership with PostScript Audio. Powerhouse partners with leading corporations and investors to help them lead the next century of clean technology innovation. Our fun Powerhouse Ventures backs founding teams building innovative software to rapidly transform our global energy and mobility systems. You can learn more about Powerhouse at powerhouse.fund, that's powerhouse.fund, and follow us on Twitter at Join Powerhouse. Our executive producer is Stephen Lacey. Our producers are Jamie Kaiser, Rye Story Fisher, and Emma McDonough. Sean Marquand mixed the episodes and composed our music. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes. <laughs>